Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Franci, and I am your host, and I want to begin by saying thank you for listening. On this show, I am having conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some amazing and extraordinary results in both their life and business. My intention is to inspire and help you learn and grow by having my guests share their journey of how they face and overcome their challenges, but also how they celebrate their many wins. And now let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. My guest today, Daphne Jones, was told by her career counselor that black girls don't successfully make it in college and that she should instead go to secretary school. She followed his advice, but today she's a corporate board member who has held CEO, CIO, and other leadership positions at Fortune 500 companies, including IBM, Johnson & Johnson, Hospira, and General Electric. She defied everyone's expectations and went from the bottom to the top of the white male dominated field of science, technology, engineering, and math. What changed her prospects was adopting a mindset she recommends to everyone. Believe you can win when they say you won't. Now, drawn from her own rags to riches story, her new book, Win When They Say You Won't, Break Through Barriers and Keep Leveling Up Your Success, is her inspiring guide to help anyone achieve the career of their dreams with a winning mindset and a proven playbook. In this conversation with Daphne today, she shows how the right mindset and tool set can help you overcome naysayers, racists, sexists, or anyone who doubts your potential for any reason. She shares her insights and wisdom for treating these issues as business problems rather than getting caught in the trap of responding only emotionally or without a strategy. An inspiring conversation to say the least with a seemingly ordinary woman who has absolutely achieved many extraordinary results. Let's get this show started. Daphne Jones, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here. Excited to be here, actually. Well, we've got a lot of ground to cover. And, you know, I was so impressed with your bio. And I never do it justice. You know, I think the, my guests always do justice to their story and their bio, of course. And uh, I'd like to start by, you know, asking you, you know, for somebody who's never met you before, and they walk up and they shake hands and they go, Daphne, so great to meet you. What do you do? What's your answer to that question these days, Daphne? Well, the answer to that question is I teach wisdom to the world. And my goal in, in doing that is to speak truth to power. And I empower the underserved, overlooked, and undervalued. Wow, I love that. Now, you are about to become a best-selling author. You've released your book, and it's going to be hitting the shelves. Uh, by the time this comes, it'll have hit the shelves. So you're excited about that. And uh, yeah. so you should be. Now, Tell me a little bit about the book and the kind of the the journey and why the book, you know, why did you, you know, I, I've been asked many times, Patrick, why don't you write a book? And I, I'm not inspired to write a book, so I haven't, although I have been really, you know, nudged to do so. But what is it for you? What, why did you write the book? What was kind of your goal in writing it? What was the message? Yeah, the message is really a win. I mean, it, it is, it's a command, it's a statement, it's a directive, it's an expectation, 
It is a hope, it's a belief, and it's a dream. It's all those things in one, when. And of course, the rest is when they say you won't. And the reason why I wrote that is I, I go around doing different talks. I'm, I sit on panels, I do keynote speeches, and I realize that I can't hold enough mics. I can't hold a mic enough times for me to be able to get a message out that um, the things that we have been told as little girls, as little people about how far we will never reach and how, how long we cannot go uh, before we can win, I just got really tired of, of having people that I know go through that I've gone through it for a long time. And the question is, what is a good platform for me to be able to inspire, encourage, empower, instruct, and inform people of color, especially who are who have been told that they're not either told or shown that they're not good enough and that they're not going to make it. I was I experienced that from um physical racial assault when I was eight years old, all the way up until I retired from corporate America somebody somehow find, found ways to give me the dog whistle of disempowerment. And and you just know when you see it, you know when you feel it, you know when you hear it. And so I wanted this to, to be um, a guide for people to know what do you do when you want to win, but it seems like forces may be against you. You may be against you, right? You may not believe that you can win. What do you do when you think that there are people that are in your circle but they're not really in your corner because it's when they're in your corner that when things are going tough and going bad, you want to be able to reach to that person in your corner. And sometimes you don't have that. So my book is intended to be a lot of different things for, um, for somebody to be able to use and learn how to win on their terms, using their narrative from the bottoms up and not just waiting for the top down directive to come, but they can do some things on their own to be able to elevate themselves and level up. I love that. And I love, too, that you wrote the book. You know, what you said was really interesting to me as a speaker myself is that you just can't get in front of a microphone enough times to really get the true message out there. And of course, when you're doing a keynote there, you know, there's a lot to a lot of ground to cover in a short period of time. It's never quite enough, you feel like, to get your message out there, especially when you're passionate about your message like you are and like anybody is as a speaker or a keynote. I want to unpack a couple of things you know you said something that even as a young girl and and we'll come back to and i want to go on this journey with you and and really unpack this conversation about you know you said as a person of color even when you were young you know at eight years old you had something that stands out in your memory as you know oh what am i different like what what happened and just give me a little bit of that background daphne because you know it's certainly a, a topic that seems to be you know front and center you know still ongoing it's i don't know if it's ever gone away it just seems maybe now with social media and covid and black lives matter and all of the things it seems to be a big conversation but i i would like to hear it from you on your journey to where you are today but what happened when you were eight what was that kind of fork in the road for you yeah uh, let me back up a little bit my my mom and dad are jamaican immigrants were jamaican but they both deceased but they were jamaican immigrants very undereducated but they were from Jamaica. And if you're from Jamaica, you are proud of being part of the British rule. Yes. Until until 1962, I believe, was when Jamaica was receiving this independence. My mom always said to me, and so I came home from school one day, and I was carrying a piece of paper that had an A on it. I got an A on a paper. 
And my mom said, Daphne, whose handwriting is this? And when she didn't say anything about the A, she just said, whose handwriting is this? I said, it's mine. You know, all the Black kids write like that. And she said to me, Daphne, you're not Black, you're British. Mm. Well, okay. I, I mean, okay, okay, mommy. Okay, okay. And so I've had that feeling in my in my spirit, in my head that, okay, I'm not Black, I'm British. Even though British is not a color and Black is not a nationality, that's who she said I was. So to fast forward or go forward a little bit, and I'm, I, I'm living in Phoenix, Illinois, go to a school called Coolidge Elementary School, and they had white kids bust from, I guess, South Holland or somewhere, all white community into our, our school. Come to find, you know, later on, I would be the one bust to the white neighborhood if, when I got to high school. But this time they came to us. So I, it was a young girl named Kathy. And she was like my best friend, you know, my best friend. She's a white little girl, blonde hair, blue eyes. She invited me over her house for Halloween. And we were going to go bobbing for apples because we never did that where I live. But I, you know, what bobbing for apples was. But that's just something that sometimes you, the different economic divide, you, you know, you don't bob for apples. You you, you peel them and you eat them. And, and you <laughs> that's what apples make are for. Apple hot, right? <laughs> that's what they're for. So I went there. And we went trick or treating, and and as young boys would do, um, they you know probably thirteen, fourteen year old boys, they started running after the little kids, and I think I was like eight years old or so, and I'd run after the little kids. They'd run after after us and try to take our candy. Well, don't try to take my candy because I love candy, and I was eight years old, so who doesn't? And I said, "Leave us alone! Leave us alone!" And here I am, I'm defending my friend and myself. And of course, I had a mask on, but you could still see my hands, right? And so they said, oh, no, 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 there's an N-word. Let's go get her. Hmm. And, and, and so they didn't say there was a Brit over there. You know, let, let's go hang out with her. Let, it was the N-word. So I knew immediately, even though I knew I was different, I, I knew that I was negatively different. I knew that I was subpar different. And because I made somebody want to hit me and beat me up. So something that I did or or was said that. And so, you know, Kathy ran home, got her dad, and he came back and I ended up, you know, chipping a tooth and uh they he got the 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 boys off me and and uh yeah, so I'll never forget that. So when I think about racial assault, that's exactly what that was, physical assault. And then you start to know what assault feels like, even if it's your career being assaulted or your profession being assaulted. You just kind of have that feeling of, okay, I'm not, there's something about me that is wrong here. And even though you're just being yourself, you're just not being accepted. And, and, then, and then, so then you're helpless, right? Like, what do you do? I, I am who I am. What do I do? And so that's where the book kind of comes in to say, there are things that you can do in order for you to win when they say that you won't. Now, do you think, uh, I, I don't want to make any assumptions, so I asked the question, you know, the fact that you recognized yourself as different at an early age and your parents were obviously proud of what you were achieving and scholastically what you were doing, was that also part of your driving 
force, you know, uh, in behind, you know, what you've achieved because you're very accomplished. You're very accomplished scholastically. You've done a lot of things in the world of being corporate. Was there something, do you think the psychology of it, Daphne, was it behind you going, I need to prove myself. I'm going to prove myself. Was, was that part of the inspiration to that drove you? I don't, it didn't kick in until later. Because I skipped first grade, I was, you know, pretty, pretty good, pretty smart in, in, you know, from a s intellect standpoint. And it didn't hurt the fact that my mom would say, Daphne, go on to the alley, because we had alleys that were not lined with concrete or anything. They were lined with pebbles. She said, go on to the alley and get two plus three rocks. And if I brought anything but five rocks in, she would then send me back out to get the switch off the willow tree and, and, and be my little legs. So she kind of made me get smart, you know, because of how she, she trained me about math and English. Um, but I didn't feel the need to prove myself because in school I was great. It was when I was in other places where I wasn't great. But it wasn't until later that I said, I need to prove myself. I need to vindicate myself because in high school, and I'll tell you the story if you want, um, my counselor told me that black girls like me don't go to college. Uh, if they do, they won't get in. They won't get in. And if they do get in, uh, we won't graduate because something will will fail. Um, and then if if we do graduate or if I graduate, no one's going to hire me because I don't represent the face of success. I don't represent the face of business. And he didn't say that part. But I, I came to realize what he meant later because I forgot what the show, what the show out of in Julia. Julia. She was like a black single mother. I think she might have been a legal secretary or something. And so I didn't have any role models, but you didn't see black people managing hundred million dollar budgets. You saw them cleaning people's houses. You saw them watching people's children, cooking their food. And so when he said no one's going to hire me, I didn't know at the time. But what he meant was, I don't look like the system has been made for me. I, you know, the system was not made for me. It was not made with me in mind, nor nor for me. And so um, that's it. Was at that point that. Every day, every minute, it was like this voice was in my ear and like, oh, you're just a secretary. You're not going to be any more than that. And that has been my motivation a lot. Um, because when, and then once you win, you like winning. And then it's you get addicted to the win. And then sometimes you don't have to worry about vindicating yourself because you're now part of the winner's circle. You're you're in the circle. You're not just a one-hit wonder, somebody who does a, releases an, a record and she's famous for three months and you never hear from her again. You have to do this continuous cycle of, of winning. And so when I did that, then it became my expectation that I would do that. So in one year, mama's saying, you're great. You're, you're not black. You're British. You know, education is everything. Everything is education. Go, go, go. The other ear says, no, you're black girl. It's not going to work for you. And I was able to pull strength out of my mom's voice a, a lot more to propel me forward, even though on times I would act like I was insecure. You know, I've acted insecurely because this voice is still here saying, you know what, they're going to take you to secretary jail and uh, you're not going to ever get out. <laughs> and so, well, you know, it's fascinating, you know, as a kind of, you know, for me, as I'll say, I'm a naive Canadian who was never brought up in any way, shape or form to be kind of 
have this racial anything and and whether it be brown or black or asian it didn't like for me it was like that's how we were raised you know so it was never an issue and i don't know if that's a canadian thing more than a u.s thing you know is that cultural between you know two different countries i don't know i i because i'm always shocked to hear about it you know as you're speaking i'm thinking to myself well, that made sense maybe, you know, like in the 60s, but you're not that old. You know, you're a relatively young lady, yet that happened. And it wasn't that long ago that you were facing those racial challenges. And and to me, I'm a little bit, you know, I didn't even know where to go with the conversation a little bit because it's, I'm just so disconnected from it. Yeah. And as much as I try and pay attention to it, it's not part of my life. It's not part of my psyche. It's like yeah, so ridiculous yeah. to me. So it's it's very interesting. Let me share with this uh, something that I wrote and I talk about it in the book is when you talk about me not being that old. First of all, I am old, but I won't tell you how old yet. Um, but these things are happening today. OK, yeah. so you don't yeah. have to be very old to get shot and killed by a policeman. Right. So. Yes. Um, and then when you look at Ketanji Brown Jackson, the first African-American female Supreme Court justice, when you see that she was um, approved and, you know, we, everybody was the plotting in the chamber because it, the, it was over. Her trial, her trial was over. And then there was, I don't know how many, count 20, 30 white men got stood up, turned their backs on her and walked out the room. And this is the Supreme Court justice. And I I talk about this in the book and I liken it to the fact that, you know, they couldn't do anything except turn their backs. But then there are people who who are supposed to be our healthcare workers. You know, African-American have more hysterectomies than any other uh, race. They don't want black babies coming into the world. Uh, police do more harm, they'll they'll be quick to kill a black person who's shooting a mob of people than a white person who's shooting a mob of people. That white person gets sent to jail, get to go to Burger King on the way to jail, right? And the black person is dead. So in 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 healthcare, in in judicial system, in policing system, in education system, the systemic nature of this is not gone. It's built into the fabric of, of how we work and live. And the kids that that beat me up, they had to hear that from somewhere. Sure. They hear it from their home. And and you know, my uh, a friend of mine, uh, she's the the a pastor's wife, she told me that her grandson was told by a white girl, this was like a week ago, if your skin color was different, I'd be able to play with you, but I can't. Where did she learn that from? She learned that from from home. And so it's not the times, it's it's what we believe and teach our, our people that will continue to perpetuate this thing. And then they'll have people like me and others that, that read the book believe, oh my God, I'm just not good enough because I've been told that and I've been shown that. So. And so at some point, did was there a fork in the road for you, Daphne, when you realized what was going on in y- your world as a black female that was smart, trying to make things move? And was there a specific incident or was it just a gradual change that took you down this certain path that had you accomplish and do all the things that you've done and then 
continue your journey now on to writing a book? Is there Was there a fork in the road for you, a fork in the road moment, for, for example? There was. It was an epiphany for me when my counselor said to me, girls like you don't go to college, go to secretarial school, which I did. I listened to him. And I was already taking shorthand because I said, wow, what a cool way to be able to take notes in college. And of course, the hard part is that you got to take the time to transcribe them because you just can't look at this scribble and and get the, the whole point. You got to put it in, into uh, into regular alphabet. And, uh, and he said, you're not going to go to college. And so I went to secretarial school, learned how to make coffee. They teach you how to operate in an office environment because I've always been in school. They teach you, well, this is how the office is set up. You'll probably sit in a desk like this. Your principal will be in an office over there. And this is how, you know, they kind of teach you the ropes. And he, uh, I, I ended up working for the assistant editor of Women's Day magazine. So it was downtown Chicago. I took the train. You couldn't tell me I didn't have it going on, you know, because I was up there with the big people and but I was on the outside, they were on the inside office, I was out in the bullpen. And so um, he dictated something to me that I could have sworn that's what he said, but when he called me in, he reprimanded me. And it wasn't just that, it was other times that he and the other principals, and by the way, it was all white men that was running Women's Day magazine. And so I started to understand, okay, that's odd. What's the woman's magazine is all these guys? What do they do? What do they know about women? And uh, but anyway, that's another story. But, but they would joke and talk about us, you know, sexual jokes or whatever. So you just hear all of this immature, non-professional thing going on. And so um, he dictated and he was talking about the compilation of demographics, compiling the demographics. Well, I thought he said compilation of demographics. And I didn't know what copulation was. And so he called me and yelled at me, says, Daphne, what the hell was, you know, whatever. And I said, that's what you said. He says, no, let's look it up. I would never have said that. And he was right. And uh, I said, this cannot be for me. I'm making too many mistakes. I'm being ridiculed. It, it just, there's something wrong here. And this guy said, this was my career. And that moment was when I said, it, it, it's it, this cannot be for me. What they're talking about in there is not rocket scientists. They're not speaking Greek. And the only thing they have on me that I don't have is they went to college and I didn't. And so it was that moment in 1974 that I said that I'm not going to be a secretary, but I'm going to have a secretary. And that became my defining moment and I said, no matter what happens, I'm going to be one of those guys one day, whatever that meant. And I said, the best way to start being one of them is to start going to college. And so I'd say that's when I hit the fork in the road. And I just, you know, I called my friends. What school are you going to? Because, you know, they were all ahead of me. They'd already graduated and they're in college now. And I wasn't. And then I had to go through all the paces to get as quickly as possible into the January class, which I was able to. And because they told me I couldn't, then something in me has always said, when somebody tells me no, I'm like, okay, watch me work. And that's when I got my bachelor's degree in three years instead of four. And I got my MBA in one year instead of two because I was not gonna let him be right. And I let the audio of his voice contrast against the video that was playing out in my life where, okay, not only did I graduate, I beat my, my high school graduating class and I got an MBA on top of it. 
And uh, then I realized, okay, so impossible is just not necessarily a fact. It's just somebody's opinion. I just have to be able to be discerning enough to understand when is impossible really impossible and when is impossible really inevitable. And that's how the fork in the road kind of manifested itself. I love that. And brilliant job of sharing that. I really can picture it. You know, in in all of this, Daphne, you know, I want to go back a little bit, you know, because as you where you've come to in your life. But I don't want to step over and I'd be interested in hearing about your parents and the impact, because here you are and, you know, tenacity, you're smart, but they're at some level, I can't help but think that message that your mom sent you, which is, you know, you're, you're, you're a Brit, you know, like something inspired you to, and, and gave you that confidence to kind of, to have some pride, you know, to have pride in being Jamaican and, and actually culturally embrace that side of it as well. Because it seems like that's what you brought forward with you. Now, you said earlier, I think I heard you say that your parents, you know, were not educated. Perhaps you're on the wrong side of the tracks. And, and, but how, influ- how much influence did either of your parents or both of your parents have on you in terms of this tenacity, this resilience, this grit, this attitude that you, and I'm sure that you were questioning, you know, I'm sure you didn't always go into anything with a lot of confidence. You probably faked it a lot. But ultimately, how much influence do you think of words of wisdom that you got from your parents really mattered to you uh, as you went on that journey? Yeah, I didn't resist the, the secretarial route at first. This was a, a man who was paid to tell students what to do. Sure. He was a picture of authority. He was white. And I didn't resist it. I just was like, huh, really? And so, and my mom, you know, says, that's what he said? And, and there was a little bit of a tension where she didn't believe it. But she said, well, that's what he said. And, and we, she's brought us up to know that just obey, do the job. It's just, it was just a different mindset. It, it wasn't fight. Yep. Um, it was just, okay, well, he told you that, then then maybe you need to do that because yeah. he knows best. Sure. So it was very, it was a really a weird dichotomy of, of go, you're Jamaican, you're British, you're this. Uh, well, he's, he's your counselor. So, you know, listen to him. Um, my dad was uh, a pastor of a church and he worked on the assembly line. My mom cleaned um, bedpans and turned patients over and stuff like that. She was not a nurse, but worked sort of like a candy striper might do or something sure. in, in a hospital. And uh, um, she was the feisty one, though. She was the one who taught me how to fight, uh, not fight physically, but just yeah. how to be, just have tenacity. Sure. Uh, because she had it. She ran the house, you know, even though my dad was there. Um, which is also a lot of times you don't see fathers in the house, but he was there, but he was always the docile one and whatever she said goes. So um, he would just pray with me, pray for me, you know, just kind of go along to, to get along. So she gave me my tenacity and, um, but she also realized that the man was the man and you better listen to the man. So when you were going, I mean, you've got a big track record in terms of your corporate background. Were you traveling the country corporately, uh, you know, traveling U.S.? Did you notice a difference 
you know, from corporation to corporation, um, because you, you worked for some big names and, you know, as you traveled across the S the U S and then actually even in the corporate structure that you were in, did you notice differences? Like, did you say, you know, I don't know, is, is California way different than New York than way different than, you know, some, one of the Southern States, like, does it all change, uh, geographically? Uh, what's your experience with that, Daphne? Yeah, when I was when I started with IBM, because that's where I first had my my job right after college, and um, in the office at Peoria, Illinois, there was only uh, there was one secretary that she was an African American that I recall. There might have been more, but I remember her. And then there was a branch manager who was a very very light skinned black guy. I didn't see any other black people in this building except those two. And so when I look at STEM, and that's sort of where I call myself as the STEM person, the science, technology, engineering, and math, I, I, there was very few of us in that. And what IBM did was for 18 months to two years, you pretty much stayed in that environment in Peoria, Illinois. And they sent you to Atlanta to learn. So they, they, they have you read books and study some things about, you know, um, accounting and accounts payable and general ledger. You had to read about how businesses work. They send you away to Atlanta to what they called AMOD, which is the A module, the first module. The module is four weeks long. Every day you have a roommate or you might, I forgot, I may have two, I may have had three other roommates. I can't recall, but we had a roommate. And then you're studying all day from eight to five. You have homework. You are in class for four weeks straight. Then you come home back to your branch office, which is Peoria for me. They You go on the road, but you don't go on, into another state. You're just, you're a local because you're going to be hanging with and learning from the existing sales reps, the existing systems engineers. You're watching how they handle customers. You're watching how they, they fix the equipment, they, whatever. And so I didn't get to travel much except from, you know, Peoria to Atlanta, Atlanta, Peoria, uh, unless I want to go on vacation or something. So it wasn't, it wasn't clear to me that there was any differences. Then as I, um, got married and then my husband, uh, wanted to move to Texas and we moved from Illinois to Texas and I started seeing more African-Americans and it might've been because I was in Peoria, Illinois, there wasn't necessarily a lot of African-Americans doing what we were doing, but as he got to Texas, there seemed to be more more people in the branch office that that were of color and that were doing more STEM. But this was probably about four or five years after I had uh, graduated from 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 college. Uh, but I didn't get to travel a lot until much later. So, as you know, as you go higher up the ladder, IBM stands for I've been moved um, back in the day. And so yeah. I didn't get to move much until they promoted me because uh, my my move to Texas was not a promotion. It was my husband wanted to go. And IBM back in the day would find you a job, no matter no matter what you did. There was always somebody leaving that that office, and they would say, "Okay, she could her skills may match Daphne's, or Daphne overlaps a little bit, whatever, you know, bring her in." So IBM always found people did their jobs when they wanted to move. Um, but it wasn't until I got promoted that then I would still move away. But I still didn't travel a lot, like I did at GE or like I did at Hospira or I did it at Johnson and Johnson because. When you're attached to a branch office, that's your office, and your customers are are local, right? And 
they might have a you know a remote location, but you still service that headquarters location where the branch office was. So I didn't do a lot of traveling, not not early on. So let's talk a little bit about your book. I mean, you're writing or you've written the book, you're launching the book. Uh, got it. You want to get your message out there, but let's just talk about your message. You know, give me some insights into, you know, what are some of the, you know, what was the one of the key messages perhaps, or what was the thought process behind the book that you said, you know, people need to know about this. This is something that I've learned. This is an experience I have, and I need to share this with the world. Yeah, I I say at least two things. Number one, they say that. Well, I, they, they, I've said that winning is received at the very end. When you take your company public or when you launch that software application or you start your own business or whatever, your kid graduates from high school, winning is received then. But it's really conceived in the beginning, in the mind when you first think of it. And so many people do not believe and have the mindset to believe that they can win. And it was because of my mom who said, Daphne, you're this, you're that, you can do whatever you want. You skip first grade, you skip this. I realized that winning is really a decision. And um, there's the book about the growth mindset and the fixed mindset. And I talk a little bit about that in the book. And I truly believe that if you have the growth mindset, you don't think you're done. You don't think you have nothing to offer. You think you have a ton to offer and you have a ton to learn. You're willing to measure your your performance. You're willing to share with other people. You have a mindset that says the pie is not fixed. The pie is expansive. And so when so that's the first thing, because you can't look, do anything. People talk about faking it till you make it. No, you have to bake it till you make it. You have to believe in something and you move towards that something and then you will make it. But if you just fake it, then you're fooling yourself and trying to fool other people. So the first thing is the mindset. The second thing is, um, and this is what's really different about my book and my concept, is that when I was a programmer, there was a way that you wrote programs to improve, to get a payroll application up or a general ledger app or, or payables or receivables app or sales analysis app. They went through four steps. Step one, you have to um, build, oh, I'm sorry, plan, build, run, and then you maintain. You plan the app. What's the app supposed to do? How big is it? How many people? What, what countries? Whatever. You plan it. Then you build it. This is part of design. Then you build it. You write the code. You test it out. Make sure it's working. Then you turn it over to the users. And that's when that's who's running the app. They're doing the payroll and you get your paychecks every week. And then you maintain it. If it breaks, if there's a Y2K issue coming up or whatever the case may be, you maintain that app. Well, today, if you look at the iPhone, uh, the iPhone is at version 16. The iOS is at version 16. So it didn't start at 16. It started in version 1. So just like apps can be improved over time from version 1 to version 2 to version 3 to version X, then why can't we as people be improved over time? And so the premise of my book is that that uh, we can think like a product, whether it's an iPhone, a bottle of soda, uh, a car, whatever it is, because there's some things that we have in common with a product. Number one, we have a market. You have a market. 
Somebody wants to consume what you offer. I have a market. If you're an HR, somebody consumes the fact that you develop people. If you're in sales, somebody consumes the fact that you deliver great quota, you, you bring revenue to the company. Everyone that is doing something has a product, uh, a market, just like a product does. Secondly, products have competition. There are people who want to take your place at that microphone. There are people who want the seat at the table where I'm sitting that want my job, that want my board seat or what have you. Just like Lowe's has Home Depot and Pepsi has Coke, right? Um, Apple has Samsung. There's competition. So I have competition. And, and number three, I have a price. So when you look at my price, my price is my cup. How much am I get, getting paid? This phone has a price. And at some point, the value has to always be greater than the price that you're paying. If you're paying more than the value, then that product is going to be thrown out, not used, whatever. Same thing with us. If we make more money than the value we deliver, then that's a problem. And the last point is that um, we have to continuously improve ourselves. So the premise of this book is if you think like a product and like a product manager, you have to understand your market. You have to understand that you need to continuously approve yourself because if you have an expiration date of July 3rd, then you're tossed out like a bottle of milk. And so you don't want to have an expiration date. You want to continuously approve by understanding your marketplace. And so my tool set, so you have the mindset of growth, my tool set allows you to do that because I have a four-step process that just like back in the days of doing apps where you plan, build, run, and maintain, now with my steps, it's envision, design, iterate, and transform. And when you are done with transforming, you have transformed into what it is that you want to be instead of just doing what it is that you do. You become something more that, that you wanted. So that's the main thing, mindset and the tool set that I provide. And then when you put that together, you will have a skill set at the end that you will have for life. You will always be able to level up and look at yourself in a new way and understand what your market is, is saying to you and then tweak whatever you have to tweak so that you're adding more and more and more value to your marketplace. So that sounds so interesting in that it is, you know, it expands and kind of speaks to what I think a number of people step over and that is is there is for those who want to take it on there's always the constant improvement you know and not everybody wants to do that not everybody is of that mindset but you know for those of you know for those individuals who say how do I expand how do I constantly improve that's exactly the tool set that they're looking for their information that says okay how can I actually achieve that growth how do I open up to the possibilities that lie before me you know my uh, my wife Stephanie is a, a mental performance coach for Olympic class athletes professional athletes and and business owners but the the point of it is in that discussion, you know, and we do part of our podcast here, actually, we do a segment called Mindset Matters with the Everyday Millionaire. Now, we just know how important that is. So that's one of the reasons that I was so interested in having this conversation with you, understanding kind of what you do in the background. Give me your view of it. Now, like I say, you've you've come up through this corporate world, you've developed some amazing skills, you have developed and I mean you've you've obviously got a great track record for it. Here's my experience and this is something I, I'm interested in hearing from your point of view. 
we often have said when we're Stephanie and I are chatting is that people want the podium. They want the gold medal. They want the job. They want it or they they want that outcome. But there is a part of it that they're not willing to do. So many people don't understand that that's the win. There's the journey to achieve the win, which means development, which means working hard and practicing and showing up at the gym on time and and actually doing the work. So there is the execution to get the win. And do you think from your experience in your coaching and speaking and all of the work that you've done, Daphne, do you sometimes see that gap where people want the win? They're not prepared to do what it takes. You know, they're, you know, an Olympic athlete could, could take a dozen years, but even if they go into a cycle, it's a four-year cycle, you know, before you even get a chance to uh, win an Olympic medal. What's your experience with that? Like if you're giving a message to people in, in that context, how do you view it? Well, I'm going to say two things. One is think about the company and think about having won before. So that's two things that come to my mind. Number one, the tools that are in my book are tools that companies use. So these folks, they're using them every day when they're doing it for their companies. And I'm suggesting while you're doing a SWOT analysis for your market, do one for yourself. Mm. And so it's not that different. Now, I'm not saying everybody that reads my book is doing SWOT analysis and they're in corporate America. Some people may just want to learn how to swim. You can learn how to swim by using the things in my book. But still, but if you're working in a company and you want to understand OKRs and you already do OKRs, you're going to do an objective and key results in my, from my book. So it's not that much of a, of a leap for them in, in some cases. But I will say for those that don't necessarily have done that, my second point about winning, everyone has won something. Because that's why I don't say learn how to win. I'm just saying the, the rest of my title is talks about leveling up. Mm-hmm. That just means you're already at a level, just go another level. In the beginning part of my book, I talk about how you won before. So how did you win before? What did you do before? What was the environment? What was the setting that allowed you to thrive? And if you've done it once, you can do it again. So whoever is reading the book, they're not that lazy. They're not that not willing to do the work because they have gotten somewhere before. Only even babies that are born, they've won because they came out, <laughs> you know, out of, out of mom. So everyone has won. And as you got graduated from high school, as you graduated from, from college, you've won. And then you got that first promotion, you've won. And so just remember what you felt, remember what uh, your motivation was before and find that motivation again, because it's not foreign to you. You've done it before. So those are the two points. Think like a company, you're doing it already. It's not a stretch, do it for yourself. And remember that you've won before. You just sort of win again. That's a problem. When you see what's happening in the world today in terms of, you know, the pivot that everybody had to do through COVID, when you reflect on, let's say, the past two or three years and your own journey, what did you learn along that way? You know, because things come at us in life, you know, and 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 I know that you've had some health scares and and than business. But in this case, when you look back and you say, okay, here's where I was pre-COVID 
here's where I had to pivot. I had to change whatever word you want to use. And here's where I am today. So two questions. How did that show up for you in terms of mindset and how you took it on? And when you reflect back on it, you know, what do you, when you look at the pandemic and lockdowns and all the things, do you think you're better for it, worse off for it? It was expanding. Kind of give me some view of that world as well. Yeah, I'll try it. Let me know about it and answer the question. I, um, I always had this vision that I'm going to teach, teach wisdom to the world. That's, that's what I do. That's what I believe I do. But I never really had to test myself and prove that that's really what I want to do. That is really most important to me. And because it was a cute phrase. And then COVID happened. And right after COVID, I got diagnosed with breast cancer. And that was in January of 2021. Mm. I, I'm not even sure if I had my first COVID shot. I can't remember. It was then when I realized that I had to do my own edit. I had to envision what I really wanted. What did I really believe? It, and as I was in the middle of writing this book, and I haven't written the book for years, but I mean, I really, I had retired from GE and I was ready to hunker down. I was hunkering down and I was, I think, selecting publishers or whatever. And I had to say to myself, is this book really that important because I, I have breast cancer now. And I really said to myself that people, I mean, because my part of my job is to, I want to leave the world better than when I found it. You know, I tell, I teach the folks I used to coach, you know, you learn the job, then you do the job, then you transform the job. Transforming the job means you leave the job better than when you found it. And so in my life, that's my job. My job is to send the elevator back down. My job is to pull people like Harriet Tubman. She's pulling the enslaved people out of slavery. That's my job. And so I said, is that really going to be what I'm going to do? Or am I going to quit this, this book thing? And I said, no, the message of, of um, calling your own plays, being your own product and your own product manager is super important because there's so many women who, you know, I'm like a unicorn. I don't want to be a unicorn. I'm tired of being the only one. And there's so many women who quit, who cried, and they don't know that they have other alternatives. They, they've learned how to take feedback personally, but instead of taking it strategically, I had to teach people that. And be like a company. When a company has a person who quits, they don't cry and quit the market. They, they look at that data and they say, why did they quit? What could we do different with our policies, right? Because they played a long game. So I had to kind of come to grips and say, am I going to persevere? Am I going to pivot? So I pivoted. And it, with Eric Reese's book, The the uh, Lean Startup, you know, either way, you don't quit your goal. You just pivot and try another approach or you persevere and keep going the way you were going. So I had to pivot for a minute. I had to have three surgeries. And for something as small as a pee, it was in, incredibly small and incredibly early found, you know, stage zero, but still they had to have what they call perfect margins or something. And even though it was tiny, they, you know, still had, they still had to go in um, because of uh, microscopically. And so I had to say, Daphne, you don't do this thing. The people need to hear you. And I remember interviewing a publisher while I was wearing a drainage 
bag hit on my side because the fluids were draining into this bag. It was as if it didn't matter. Um, so I've learned that I never really had to make a choice. I never had really been sick before. I never had to say it's me or them or whatever before. But then coming out of it, I realized that I'm not here by myself and I'm not only here for myself. And I had to really, I had to really feel that and know that. And so, so funny when you read my book, my, my publisher, she didn't even know I had breast cancer until she read chapter 13 of the book. I never told her, even all that we were going through, finding ghost writers, whatever. She said, Daphne, I can't believe it because it wasn't about me. Because how you look at the problem is the problem. And if I looked at the problem as if it was about me, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you tonight. But I had to look at it because the problem was the women, the people of color who need to be inspired and instructed and excited to know that they can win when people say they want. You know something? I love what you just said. And can you repeat it? The part about the problem. I was going to say, that was not 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah, let me get to that. No, I, I no, I love what you just said, though, is that. Yeah, the problem, the problem. How you look at the problem is the problem. Yeah. If you look at the problem like it's about you, then you you have one set of answers that are more inward, inwardly focused um, and all that. But if you look at the problem as, you know, teaching wisdom to the freaking world, <laughs> which is my vision, then how I looked at the problem became easier to answer. The reason I wanted to shine a light on it, uh, it because it is often how we view the world. I mean, you know, there's probably many speakers who have said it, but, you know, the quality of your life is the reflection of the quality of the questions you ask. And when you're solving a problem, what is the quality of the question you're asking? That's a quality question. And, and I love that. And there's a part of... I don't know whose quote it was, but I've, I really, it, I picked up on it recently again, which is as a coach and even in your book is I can't, I'm not interested in telling you what to think. I'm interested in telling you how to think. And when you're talking about, you know, the, the way you view a problem or when you talk about what you're discussing in your book, it isn't about what to think. It's about how to think, because that really does shift perspective in a very powerful way. And that's why I wanted to just shine a light on that. I love that that aspect of what you just shared, because I think it's really powerful. And if more people could look outside of themselves, as you did in your example, it really does change how you view the world. And it's always, you know, Wayne Dyer, you, one of my favorite quotes in the world, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. And, and when you look outside of yourself and make it bigger than you, and you want to change in your case, you know, how women are and women of color are and how we approach, you know, our own growth. I mean, that's a, that's a big problem to solve. That's a that's a cool thing to take on, which is, to your point, nothing really. It's not about you. You get to be the messenger and to share the message and to be the contribution and to make the difference in the world that you want to make. You want to leave it a better place. Those are big aspirations. And, and I love that. But I wasn't always there. Well, tell me about that. Yeah. I mean, that before 2021, I was just this person who retired, serving on the boards. I think I got it going on. 
and nothing like a sickness that can just drop you to your knees mm-hmm. and um, and make you say, well, okay, what what is life? What why am I really here? Am I just here to get the latest set of you know red bottom shoes and make my husband look you know good on his arm? You know, is that all? Well, like, or am I really here to truly make a difference? Now I'm saying I never thought I made a difference. I never took it as seriously. It just came naturally to me because I was, you know, I just said, okay, there's somebody who doesn't believe in me. I'm going to go over there or I'm going to prove them wrong. Whatever it was, every battle was, I could, I could handle it. I felt I could handle it. This one was different for me. And it made me, like I say, get dropped to my knees and, and really reflect and ponder and, and look at my values in a different way. And and I was living in Miami at the, you know, the time that I have a home there and I have a home here in New York. And my, and my husband and I were always used to living apart from each other because I would be at GE in Milwaukee, then I would be at Hasbury in Illinois, while he was always in New Jersey or New York. So we've lived apart for a while. And then we come home, to, you know, we come together and go back apart, you know, come back and forth. And now with this, he, I had to be home all the time um, because he had to tend to me and whatnot. And then we discovered we liked each other in addition to <laughs> loved each other. And so he just brought new things to, to me, maybe realize what was really important um, about life. Yeah, it's so great. You know, it's those are other forks in the road, right? And so it is an interesting kind of dynamic that shifts when all of a sudden something like this is really, you know, something life-threatening is in front of you. And you really do, I guess, have to take, you know, you got to kind of look at what you've got going on and, and reprioritize. And to your point, having a shift of values and, or at least maybe even becoming aware of aware of your values, aware of your values in a different way. Let me ask you this, because this is, you know, uh, often a conversation as, you know, business people, as coaches, as somebody wanting to support others, relationship and in what you've achieved, you know, how important is it? And I don't mean it's really important. I I mean, how important is it for you that your husband has been along your side all these years? And, you know, it looked a certain way. I mean, you know, my wife and I very similar. She's traveled the world because of what she did. And we both have traveled extensively, but her particularly because she was literally traveling the world to competitions, working with the athletes, et cetera. And so we were parked sometimes, you know, a couple of weeks at a time on a regular basis. And, you know, and it changed over the years and it, you know, was a lot and then it was a little, but, you know, I think about who we are as a couple and how, absolutely impossible that would have been if we weren't really, really secure in our relationship and had an agreement and understood, you know, we, we understood and the the expectations were laid out really clearly, but I don't want to put words or anything in your mouth. How was it for you and your husband that you had the relationship you had and that you did what you did and you were traveling and apart and how, but how important was the clarity that you had in your relationship? I got to go backwards um, to the fact that this is my second husband. Mm-hmm. And um, in my book, I talk about the, the that you're not in this by yourself. You have what I call the five F's. So when I was working for IBM, 
it was it was a rocky time in my my marriage because I was like this, like going straight up. He, on the other hand, was kind of like this, and I met him at IBM. So he was an IBM sales rep. So we got married. So he would go like this. Then he'd find a new job, and he'd kind of go like this. Then he'd you know go down again. It was like a roller coaster, and and mine was you know to the moon kind of thing until it wasn't. Um, and then I I realized that that marriages don't just happen. They don't. They're not self feeding and and self sustaining. That it takes the people in the marriage to work on the marriage. And I didn't know that. My mom did tell me that. It looked like she and dad were just fine. And I don't know what she did to the, with the marriage, but we, they were together forever. And so. I realized then, and that's why I wrote the five F's in the book, is that any time that you're going to make any move, whatever it happens to be, you've got to look at your faith, your family, your fitness, your finances, and furthering your career. And most of us only look at furthering our career. We only think about what the next job is, or we may think about the finances that are going to go with it. But the family and the faith and the fitness are always, are usually left aside. So we got a divorce and I was getting laid off at the same time. So my family, my finances, and my career were all under attack at the same time. So I said to myself, if I got married again, I will not have this happen. I will take care of the marriage. I will nurture it. I will learn from this mistake and, and I will go on. So when my husband and I got married, he and I talked about you know, our, what our goals were. And, and he was helping me raise my son. And, and so to the point where I was offered a job within Johnson and Johnson in, in San Francisco or Los Angeles, my son was a sophomore or junior in high school. And I was in New Jersey and I had to ask my husband, what do you think? I said to my son, I will never take you out of your high school because it's horrible to take a kid out of high school and move them to a different high school because the peer pressure or the whatever, it's just not very good. So I knew that I couldn't take him from New Jersey to California. And I knew I couldn't leave him by uh, with my husband because my husband would not have the time to take him to SAT prep, but college visits and all that. So I turned the job down. And instead of looking at furthering my career as number one importance, I looked at my family as number one importance. And so that kind of carried on uh, to the rest of my career. And when it was time for me to leave New Jersey and I had a job offer in, in Illinois, I said to my husband, what do you think? This is how we could make it work. And he says, okay, yeah, go. Come back and see me every couple of weeks. I'll come see you. Meet, you know, we'll meet each other in India. You know, whenever I would travel to other countries, T would come with me or meet me there. And um, we always found a way to have dating. Dating was a very important part of our relationship. So it was a conversation. Then one time he got sick. I mean, like sick where he was in the hospital for like 10 days. And so I had to leave my job, uh, te you know, temporarily and, and conduct work in the hospital. And they would give me uh, like a, side, a chair next to him or whatever. And I would do conference calls or what have you. And he said, well, when are you coming home? And when he told me that, Asked me that question, I said, I'm I'm coming right home. That was it was tired. He was tired of living by himself. He's getting older. He was sick. So I, you know, quit my job and uh came and moved back in with him. And then he got better. Then I left again. Um <laughs> and 
His time went to Milwaukee with GE. And, and I said, can I go again? He says, well, this is your last time. You, you know, when you retire from there and come home, you're not going anywhere again. So it's really a conversation you have to have, but you got to be aware that your faith, your family, your finances, your fitness, and your, your career, all of them matter at the same time. And you have to decide which one matters more than, than the other. And so it was, it was very important to me. Uh, we would not have survived 25 years if we had not done that. Yeah, you know, and, and I think, you know, it's so important to understand. And, you know, the key word in all of that is awareness. And, you know, and and being aware, you know, to to look at the other side of it. And, of course, you had that shift that goes, no, my son and my husband are a really important part of my life and I want to look after them. And, and so you created a scenario for yourself where you could do that. So many people don't do that. So many people operate on top of it. They don't communicate in that way. And I think there's a part of that, which is, you know, the courageous conversations that sometimes have to go with that because there's, could yeah. be a, you know, I don't align, you know? Yeah. I realized it was more important for us as a unit than, than just for me. Then again, how we look at the problem sometimes is the problem. And uh, and my son, I never regretted that. And I realized, and I believed in my heart, I'll always get another promotion. They'll, they're going to ask me again. Now you have to, you can't keep saying no, you know, like eight times. You know, you have to say yes to one of those opportunities. But this particular one, it was my first or second one, and I I knew there would be at least one more. So it worked out fine. That's great. I love your story. I love the journey that you've been on, you know, in the context of uh, the podcast, which is, you know, seemingly ordinary individuals achieving extraordinary results. You know, when we reflect on what you've shared with us today, I'm sure you're very proud of the fact that, you know, you came from pretty grassroots, plain Jane kind of life and uh, really built something for yourself, uh, came to be very successful in business and then author of your book. When you reflect back on it, Daphne, do you are you somewhat amazed by yourself or you look at it and go, oh, no, this is, you know, I should have or could have done better. Or how do you how do you when you look at what you've accomplished in your life, given, like I say, your your humble beginnings, how does it show up for you? Well, I'll tell you that when when my books showed up at the house here, I cried and um, and then I got scared. Mm. I got scared that people are going to judge me mm. and that the book really isn't all that. And there goes that counselor again, darn it. <laughs> you know, I'm just a secretary in a pinstripe suit. And, uh, and so it humbles me every time I'm getting ready to go on stage. And, and I remember my, the CEO, Chris Begley, uh, who was the former CEO of, uh, one of my companies that I was on, I was the CIO for. And uh, he said, Daphne, you're the highest ranking woman in this company. I said, but I'm just a poor black girl from Phoenix, <laughs> Illinois. And that's how I've always viewed myself as this poor black girl who was told she'd never go anywhere from Phoenix, Illinois. And, and he says, no, they look up to you. So they watch when you're happy. They watch when you're not. They see when you're mad. So watch yourself. Always, you know, have your game face on kind of a thing. So I've been told many times, I think I'm always humbling myself and never feel worthy and des deserving of it. And maybe that's what keeps me going. 
because I'm like, I don't deserve this or this is going to be really hard for me to get. I got to work really hard to get it. Uh, I never took anything for granted. And so it, it it's very humbling and scary at the same time. And I'm not going to, I don't think I'm going to do another book. I told my husband that I would not, but I'm the CEO of a company. I am on three boards and now I have this book and I don't have a lot of other things that I want to do before I passed on, if you will. So this was really amazing for me. It's taken me 12 years to get this book out. I love it. And I love your story so much, so much wisdom in, you know, in what you shared today. So as we wind down, uh, I always like to have a little bit of tongue in cheek fun and go through some, <laughs> what we call rapid fire questions <laughs> that okay. are rarely rapid, but we'll do our best. And we, we I'll, got... try. I'll try and be rapid. Well, this one isn't so rapid fire, but tell me a little bit about, you know, you, you talk about fitness and family, but you know, when you look at your own health routine, do you have a self-care routine, a morning or an evening kind of routine in terms of whether it be meditation or working out or journaling? What kind of stuff do you do to look after yourself, Daphne? Yeah. So from a fitness standpoint, um, I work out probably five days a week. I didn't work out today. And even though I, I had my gym clothes on, I just didn't get downstairs. We have a gym here. And so I work out five days a week, whether I'm here or in Florida. Um, I work, I do the elliptical for one hour, nothing less. I do a lot of my board reading on it. So it takes the pain away of the elliptical. So you read and next thing you know, hours gone by. So an hour minimum on that, half an hour minimum on a bike. And I do floor work. Uh, I also have a big boxing bag, 90 pound bag. So I'm also an amateur boxer. So I enjoy hitting the bags like uh, at least once a week. Sure. And then um, I'm, I read and that's how I calm down is by reading uh, fiction novels and uh, Jack Reacher or uh, John Sanford, whatever. So I do a lot of reading. I love to cook and I love to travel. Um, I started something called Mind and Body. Mind and Body, if I was, there's a third word there but or fourth word, Mind and Body. But it talks about uh, having water up and fire down. So a lot of times people have a hot head. So the fire is up and their belly is cold. And what you want to do is have a belly that's warm and full of fire. It helps you with the digestive system. It helps your, your kidneys and liver and everything do well. And then you want to have a cool head. So there's meditation and body tapping uh, that we do at Sonoma. We do it here with the, with the, the people from the different um, locations. And we do a, a Zoom thing two or three times a week where we're just sitting there breathing and body tapping and thinking of nothing. And even if something does come, it's like a cloud. It just needs to go right out of your head. Don't plan dinner. Don't think about grocery shopping yeah, or anything. Let it go. Just think about nothing. Mm -hmm. And and I believe that that is really good for me because my blood pressure comes down. I immediately start yawning. And so when you're when you start yawning, you start crying, and that's cooling your head. Mm. And so the water is up, the water's in your head, the water's coming out. And meanwhile, you're tapping and tapping. So it's, it's a water up, fire down, and it's, it, it helps me. It's like a meditation slash yoga type of thing. Wow. Beautiful. I love it. Do you have a favorite book that you was really impactful that comes to mind or a book that you like to gift to others? I am actually reading a book called Talking About Imposter Syndrome, how to... I may, I have to see if I can find the name of the book, but it's about imposter syndrome. 
And that's a book that I want to give to people. Um, and my son is one um, who we all believe that we don't deserve where we are. And we work to be perfectionists because there's imposter syndrome takes all kinds of different forms, I understand. And sometimes you want to work alone because you don't want anybody to know how bad you are or how fake you are. Other times you 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 work incessantly because you're a perfectionist and you don't want to be viewed as anything else but you know but great. And so that's a that's a book. And then um, yeah, I, I would stop there. I can't think of the names. I have several books that should be in my head, but they're not. But that's <laughs> hate when that happens. Damn it, it happens to yeah. me all the time. Do you have a favorite swear word? Yeah. You're going to just leave it? Do you want to share it with me? <laughs> well, you didn't ask me to share it. Yeah, um, yeah, it's 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 the F word. Yeah, you're I mean, an F bomber too, like, yeah. Yeah, they have the farmers. So, you know, when I hit my foot, I'm like... Yeah. And uh, yeah, and so that's my, that's my favorite word. That's your go-to. Okay, that's great. Do you have a favorite inspirational quote that comes to mind? Yeah, I would say that uh, the, the, the victorious warrior wins first and then goes to battle but the defeated warrior goes to battle and hopes to win love that if heaven exists what do you want to hear god say when you arrive at the gates well done my good and faithful servant nice your room your desk or your car what do you clean first my robe that was my guess with you <laughs> why what's the what is I don't it different know. It just it was just a thing it okay. just showed up for me what can i tell you intuition yeah favorite tune or favorite band do you have some music or a, a song that lights you up when you kick it in wow i'm i'm all michael janet's you know i'm all jackson's yeah uh i love mace uh he's a rapper now jamaican background do you what about reggae what about reggae? Yeah, I'm bleary out. I don't like reggae. Oh, or jazz. funny! That's great. I'm really, and my husband doesn't understand me a bit. He's Jamaican too. He has no idea why that could be, and <laughs> I, I just don't like jazz. And reggae is just strange to me. Uh-huh. Uh, Bob Marley, you know, I could, I can deal with it. I can dance to it, and and yeah. all that stuff. But it's just, it's not the first. I may have like two or three reggae songs in my playlist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, oh gosh, it's, it's just so hard not to like Bob Marley. Okay. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> favorite, uh, favorite movie? Anything that comes to mind? Drumline. <laughs> okay. You remember that show? It was, uh, it's always about the black marching band and I, I'm into drumming. I, I've always loved drums and, and bands. So I used to play the accordion and uh, it was always part of every band and somehow. So I, I love Drumline. That's awesome. My sister-in-law, Grace, is in Boomerang, and that's always a favorite of mine as well. Oh, fantastic. Uh, Earthy and Grace and Robin Givens. I love, I love Boomerang. And uh, it, it's funny. I don't think about the recent ones. Yeah. Uh, you know, Thunder Forever, you know, Black Panther was great. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cool. And finally, Daphne, what are you grateful for? I'm grateful... Um, for my family, for my life, and the longevity of my life. And that I'd never run out of ideas. Mm. It was fantastic. Well, 
I am always grateful for my guests and the opportunity to meet and listen to some great insights and stories, the wisdom that you shared. And like you, I am grateful for my life and my family. And I want to say thank you for uh, your time today and the insights and wisdom that you did share was fantastic. And uh, thanks for joining me on the show. Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.